Nietzsche introduces this essay by asking, what is the meaning of ascetic ideals? He answers that it has meant many different things to many different people, suggesting that we would rather will nothingness than not will. Nietzsche seizes upon the example of Richard Wagner, asking why Wagner embraced chastity in his old age, and why he wrote Parsifal. After a brief discussion of Wagner, Nietzsche concludes that we can learn little about the meaning of ascetic ideals from artists because they always lean on the authority of some prior philosophy, morality, or religion. Wagner's asceticism, Nietzsche suggests, would not have been possible without Schopenhauer's philosophy. Wagner may have been attracted to Schopenhauer because of the prominence Schopenhauer gave to music in his philosophy. While all other art forms are merely representative of phenomena, Schopenhauer suggested that music speaks the language of the will itself. Schopenhauer followed Kant in suggesting that the beautiful is what gives us pleasure without interest. Schopenhauer adapted this definition to his own philosophy, seeing the beautiful as having a calming effect on the will freeing the will from the urgency of its constant volition. Nietzsche first remarks that Kant's definition of beauty comes from the standpoint of the spectator, not the artist. Next, he contrasts this definition with that of an artist, Stendhal, who defined beauty as a promise of happiness. This definition is quite the contrary of Kant's and Schopenhauer's, as it arouses both the will and interestedness. Finally, Nietzsche suggests that Schopenhauer's position was a personal one and by no means disinterested. Here we get a preliminary insight into a philosopher who honors an ascetic ideal. He does so to gain release from the constant torture and torment of his will. Everything strives to secure for itself those conditions under which it maximizes its feeling of power. Philosophers thus abhor marriage. Nietzsche observes that Heraclitus, Plato, Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, Kant, and Schopenhauer never married, and all other distractions from their philosophical pursuits. In this, Nietzsche finds the meaning of ascetic ideals among philosophers. It is a means to maximize the feeling of power. Ascetic ideals are not a denial of existence, but rather an affirmation of existence, wherein the philosopher affirms his and only his existence. Thus, Nietzsche concludes, philosophers do not write about asceticism from a disinterested standpoint, they think of its value to themselves and how they can benefit from it. Philosophers are at their best when they isolate themselves from the bustle and chatter of the world about them. <clears throat> Having identified the value of ascetic ideals among philosophers, Nietzsche goes on to argue that philosophy was born of and depends on ascetic ideals. All major changes in our world have been achieved through violence and have been mistrusted. The contemplative, skeptical mood of philosophy 
ran counter to ancient morality, and must have been mistrusted. The best way to dispel this mistrust was to arouse fear, and Nietzsche sees the ancient Brahmins as paramount in this respect. Through self-torture and asceticism, they made not only others fear and reverence them, but they also came to fear and reverence themselves. Essentially, he suggests, philosophers could not parade as philosophers, and so chose a different mask to present themselves. With the Brahmins and with most philosophers since, this mask has been that of the aesthetic priest. Nietzsche suggests that this is still the case. There is not yet enough freedom of will on this earth for the philosopher to drop the pretense of the ascetic priest. The first obvious question for those not familiar with the word is what is meant by ascetic? Nietzsche captures this concept quite nicely with the slogans poverty, humility, chastity. Essentially, asceticism is the renunciation of earthly pleasures in favor of a simple, abstinent life. Monks and hermits are often associated with asceticism. Richard Wagner, 1813-1883, was a great German composer who strove to reinvent and reinvigorate opera by developing new ways of bringing music and drama together. In his youth, Nietzsche was a great admirer of Wagner's and made friends with Wagner and his wife, Cosima. Nietzsche's first book, The Birth of Tragedy, 1872, contained a long eulogy to Wagner that Nietzsche later regretted. Until the mid-1870s, Nietzsche considered Wagner an artist of genius, not bogged down by the morality of his day, but rising above it to create something new and life-affirming. By the mid-70s, their relationship had cooled, partly owing to Nietzsche's dislike for Wagner's anti-Semitism, nationalism, and growing egomania, and partly owing to Wagner's last opera, Parsifal, which, to Nietzsche, expressed a contemptible expression of traditional Christian morality. One of his last books, The Case of Wagner, 1888, explains his break with the German composer, in this essay, Nietzsche uses Wagner as an example of an artist who turned to ascetic ideals late in his life. He embraced chastity and vegetarianism, and in Parsifal, he further expressed this asceticism. Nietzsche blames this in part on Wagner's desire to become the kind of hero he had hitherto written about. He concludes that where artists are concerned, Ascetic ideals amount to nothing. Arthur Schopenhauer, 1788-1860, was a German philosopher profoundly influenced by Kant and by Indian philosophy, whose great work was The World as Will and as Idea, 1819. Schopenhauer followed Kant in suggesting that the world we perceive consists merely of appearances and that we cannot sense the thing in itself. 
Only in ourselves can we sense the will that underlies and drives all things. We see the influence of Indian philosophy in Schopenhauer's assertion that true peace can only be found in an extinction of the will. In art, he argues, we find a temporary calming of the passions, while an ascetic might be able to extinguish the ego entirely. Schopenhauer's discussion of the will profoundly influenced Nietzsche's philosophy. Nietzsche differs from Schopenhauer largely on the question of the extinction of the will. Nietzsche sees this as dangerous nihilistic pessimism, arguing that we should instead seek to affirm and strengthen the will. However, he also sees philosophical asceticism as an aid to philosophical contemplation in its clearing away of distractions. Thus, Schopenhauer's asceticism is superior to Wagner's. In the second essay, Nietzsche argues that to say a thing has a meaning simply means that a will is being exercised on it, and that one thing can be given countless different meanings, depending on who is interpreting it and what they value. He gives us the example of punishment, which has received countless different interpretations. In this essay, when he opens by asking, what is the meaning of ascetic ideals? We can expect that there will be different meanings for different people. For philosophers, ascetic ideals maximize their feeling of power. Asceticism aids them in their quest for knowledge, and the increase in knowledge increases their feeling of power. Because asceticism is so interpreted by philosophers, they see it as a good thing. However, with the example of Wagner, Nietzsche argues that ascetic ideals have no such value for artists, and that they can in fact impede the production of great art. Artists, unlike philosophers, cannot isolate themselves from the world of people and sensuality and still produce worthwhile work. Nietzsche's claim in the first section of the essay that we would rather will nothingness than not will is crucial to his understanding of ascetic ideals. This claim is also found in the last sentence of the book. Briefly, the suggestion is that to will ascetic ideals is to will nothingness. Schopenhauerian asceticism wills nothingness, since it tries to extinguish the will altogether. This, Nietzsche suggests, is still willing, and such willing is better than not willing at all. According to him, our fundamental drive is the will to power, the desire to exercise our will at all times. The mystery of asceticism, then, is to explain how people could maximize their feeling of power by willing nothingness. In the ascetic priest, we find the most serious representative of the ascetic ideal. He sees life as a wrong road on which one must finally walk back to the point where it begins, or as a mistake that is put right by deeds. Life, with all its sensory pleasures and distractions, must be denied and turned against itself. The result is the ascetic life. In this light, the ascetic life is not a goal, but a path away from life 
towards something different and better. Aesthetic ideals spring up spontaneously everywhere on earth, in every time and culture. There must be something desirable in aesthetic ideals that it should be so universal. The aesthetic life seems to be a contradiction. It is the will to stop willing, life turned against itself. It is an expression of the will to power, trying to master not some part of life, but trying to master life itself. Such a contradictory will, when turned to philosophy, is likely to turn itself against the real, claiming that it is unreal. Thus, physical objects are seen as illusions, and the human subject and ego are renounced. Reason is limited to dealing with the illusions of physical reality and cannot penetrate the truth itself. Rather than argue against this point of view, Nietzsche expresses some gratefulness toward it. By shifting our perspective, it allows us to see a matter from a new point of view. It may not be objective, influenced as it is by ascetic ideals, but Nietzsche suggests there is no such thing as an objective point of view. At least there is no such thing as the pure, willless, painless, timeless knowing subject that we posit as the ground for things like pure reason and absolute truth. We can only approach objectivity, Nietzsche argues, by gaining as many perspectives as we can on a matter. There is only a perspective seeing, only a perspective knowing, and the more affects we allow to speak about one thing, the more eyes, different eyes, we can use to observe one thing, the more complete will our concept of this thing, our objectivity, be. Nietzsche objects to ascetic ideals only insofar as it tries to eliminate thought altogether. This would not be a different perspective, but a demolition of all perspectives. Nietzsche next tackles the contradiction found in saying that the ascetic ideal represents life against life. He suggests that quite the contrary is true, that the ascetic ideal springs from the protective instinct of a degenerating life. Humans are great experimenters, constantly exploring, searching, and struggling to gain power over themselves, over nature, even over the gods. Through this entire struggle in self-torture, we have also made ourselves sick, and it is no wonder that we find the ascetic ideal springing up everywhere. Though it may seem to deny life, the ascetic ideal is supremely life-affirming, as it says yes to life in the face of hardship and sickness. Nietzsche says the sickness arises from nausea at and a pity for humanity. This nausea inspires nihilism, the will to nothingness, which characterizes ascetic ideals. The nihilism of the weakest and the sickness, sickest is a great danger to any who are still healthy as it parades as virtue, claiming that health, power, and happiness are evils that will be punished. The strong should not be ashamed of their strength, and they must be quarantined from the sick if they are to maintain their strength. 
They should not pity or try to cure the sick majority. Nietzsche is fond of hyperbole and metaphor, and it might not be immediately apparent what he means when he accuses the majority of his contemporary Europeans of being sick. In the last decade of his working life, when the genealogy was written, Nietzsche himself was very sick, suffering from migraines, insomnia, and near blindness, among other things. Nonetheless, he felt himself to be in a far greater state of health than most of his contemporaries who, though healthy in body, were sick in mind and spirit. Nietzsche claims that the sickness arises from the constant struggles and torments that we put ourselves through. We have gained depth, morality, society, and inner life. Everything that we might claim distinguishes us from animals through self-torture and struggle. We could go so far as to say that we are the inward-looking animal and that this inward-looking has only been generated by a constant struggle against ourselves and our own nature. The greatest triumph for Nietzsche is to delight in and affirm the self-torture and struggle, to see it as a willful act of creation, whereby we free ourselves of our instincts and our evolutionary past and fully create ourselves. More often than not, however, we do not see all our torments as a triumph, but rather look upon them as sufferings to be endured. If we see life as suffering, life becomes something to be pitied, something that might arouse nausea. Those pity and nausea are what Nietzsche denotes as the great sickness in humanity. Those who become sick of humanity are not strong enough for the struggle that is humanity. From the sickness grows resentment, nihilism, and everything else Nietzsche despises. Sickness is an apt name because it is contagious. It generates a slave morality that persuades the strong that they are evil and induces them to self-hatred and sickness as well. The only safety for the strong is in avoiding the sick masses and ignoring their moralizing. The ascetic ideal among the masses is an expression of a sick will to power. The sick are suffering from life, seeing life as a misfortune, and in the ascetic ideal they find a means of asserting themselves. Any positive act of will, pursuing health, happiness, strength, etc., is beyond their means, so they cannot will these things. Instead, they will nothingness, the only thing they can successfully will. As Nietzsche claims at the beginning of this essay, the sick would rather will nothingness than not will. There is no doubt that Nietzsche opposes the sick as a bad thing and antithetical to life. However, we should not fully associate asceticism with sickness. Nietzsche finds only one interpretation of asceticism in claiming it is the only expression of the will to power left available to the sick. Asceticism is only bad insofar as it might be indicative of sickness. However, this is not only one way of looking at asceticism. 
We have already seen that Nietzsche gives it different meanings for philosophers and artists. That being said, we should also note that Nietzsche considers the artist's asceticism to be found in the philosopher's asceticism, and the philosopher's asceticism to be related to the ascetic priests. In that sense, they are all in some way indicative of sickness, but the matter is more complex than a simple asceticism is bad.